Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. It's my great pleasure to um, be here with the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Reese, this morning. Uh, as you may know, he was elected mayor in May 2016. On that day, Bristol became the first major European city to have elected a mayor of Black African heritage. Uh, he began his working life with Tear Fund and then spent time working in the U.S. with Sojourners, a Washington, D.C.-based social justice organization, and President Clinton's advisor, Reverend Dr. Tony Campolo. After returning to the U.K., worked in with BBC Bristol as a broadcast journalist with the Black Development Agency supporting BME-led voluntary sector and NHS's Bristol Public Health team on delivering race equity in mental health. During this period, he completed his master's in political theory and government and a second global economic development and a second master's, pardon me, in global economic development. He had a number of public appointments, including the National Community Forum and became a Yale World Fellow and co-founded the City Leadership Program. Marvin was born and brought up in Bristol by his mother, moving between St. Paul's, Lawrence, Weston, and Easton. He entered the political world having graduated from Operation Black Vote and Labour Future Candidate programs. During his first term in office, he oversaw the building of 8,000 homes, announced the development of a mass transit system, and provided quality work experiences for 3,500 uh, children. And he works in, in, and lives in Bristol with his um, wife and three children. Uh, Marvin, I just want to say thank you for being here for this uh, fireside chat. Thanks for having me on. Okay, don't worry. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I wanted to to kick off so much of this week. We've been talking about um, place and naming of place, the meaning of places, and you've been really at the center of that conversation in Bristol with the Colston um, statue and Colston Hall. And I I kind of wanted to to ask you about this kind of process of reevaluating our places and our place names that we're going through. And, and what you think the way forward is for the way we, we name places? Well, we, we're going forward uh, making use of something called the History Commission that we've just set up. And um, uh, we're using that to think about, to help us engage with the true story of, of our city and how we've become the city we are. Bristol has done a fantastic job historically of telling when it has bothered to tell its story, a fantastic story to the outside world. Uh, Brunel is involved, Kingdom Brunel, the suspension bridge, Bloons, I call it the Bloons, Bridges and Brunel version of Bristol's history. And it's never really fronted up to the inequalities and the oppressions that have been part of Bristol's history, whether those be around class, women, uh, gay people or black people. Um, it's it's been a it, It's a city in which uh, 15% of the population live in the top 10% most deprived areas in England. And yet it's a thriving, you know, progressive culture. Um, and, and our hope is that by telling that fuller story, that our population will be better positioned to think about who it wants to celebrate and what it wants to celebrate. And that plays itself out in what it calls things. Um, the, the truth is I grew up in a city with a slave trader in the middle of it, given a place of honor on a statue. And I, and I don't think that's appropriate. Um, I wouldn't have, you know, I can't agree to the way it was pulled down because that wasn't illegal. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, I don't mourn its, I don't mourn its passing. Um, but we, I, do think, I do think we need to grapple with the idea that 
naming public places after particular individuals is about honor. It's not about teaching us history. It's about giving places, places, pieces of, it's about how we honor and what we choose to remember, what we choose not to remember. Um, but we've got to have that fuller understanding of who we are before we go into that conversation, I think. And I guess, I, I know the Historical Commission, they're going to look into individuals who've been honored or kind of trace that history, but are they also going to participate in the in the renaming? Or do you think, I mean, you had a vote, I, I believe you had a kind of a citizen poll around the renaming of Colston Hall, is that right? Or are you? Well, the local paper did. But the local paper's been just as bad. I mean, the, the local paper does not have a great track record on race. Right? So it's turned up lately and started to kind of position itself as the, you know, um, as the, um, the, the, you know, the facilitator of a mature conversation on race. Actually, I mean, I grew up in a city. It, I mean, there were names about the local paper that were used amongst black people, and uh, uh, it was not that. So, so they did a poll. Uh, but you've got to be careful about these online polls because they're self-selecting as well uh, with the paper. Now, the History Commission is not, I'm not going to give the History Commission responsibility for naming. What, what I want them to do is, is, is do what we've been calling public history. Work with the city to unearth the stories of Bristol. All right? We've got lots of community <laughs> history groups and then we've got the kind of the, the mainstream history. So these are all academics. So they are proper historians, uh, philosophers, economists. Um, and they will do the job of pulling together those stories um, and then kind of packaging them and, and, and presenting them back to the city so we have a fuller appreciation of, of who we are. I mean, Colston celebrated, but actually there was a very strong feminist movement uh, within the city that had their offices smashed up, actually, during a period of time. I mean, these are heroes, you know, and um, we had, you know, abolitionists uh, fighting in Bristol. Hannah Moore was one of them, uh, a woman abolitionist who didn't get as much profile, but uh, was was a very uh, prominent uh, person. There's been in, in this city the history of fights for gay rights, for example. So we've had unions started in, in, in Bristol fighting for the rights of dockers. It might be that when we know these fuller stories, we choose to celebrate different things. And, and I might say not just individuals. I, I, there is also a debate about whether we should be celebrating individuals or whether we should be celebrating movements and moments in time. Um, but that's also something I think that when we um, tell this fuller story, the city can grapple with, and then we can, whatever vehicle we set up, can begin to make some decisions about. Uh, this week, there was a very uh, a controversy over the installation of Mary Wollstonecraft, which is why I'm kind of returning to statues, because we really do place a lot of emphasis on these on these things put in put in places. And like you said, who we celebrate and how we celebrate it as well, which I think is has been interesting this week where they, they, they elected to choose it and then they just didn't, didn't really like the sculpture. Mm. Um, so, uh, and felt that it, it cast a whole uh, bunch of new questions about, um, about what it was celebrating and who and how. Um, I want to shift uh, gears yeah, just a little. Who, who, how, and who chooses too. Because yeah, who chooses. Go back to Colston statue was not set up by the people of Bristol. It was a rich individual who paid for it and obviously, you know, got permissions, but put it up. And one of our one of the things we've been saying is whatever goes in place of Colston statue should not be down to a single individual. So it's not people saying, Marvin, what are you going to put there? We've got to have a conversation with the city and we don't need to rush into that. Future's not going anywhere. Take our time, take a breath, reevaluate who we are and then make decisions. 
And then, of course, there was the artist statue that that was installed there. A rich aristocratic guy from London making a decision on behalf of Bristol, just like when they put up the Colson statue. No matter what the statue was, it was it was an elitist um, sculptor from London deciding he was going to put a statue up on that spot. Totally inappropriate. Totally inappropriate. Uh, Against the wishes of a black mayor, might I say, he was descended from enslaved Africans who told him on the phone, I appreciate the sentiment, but now is not the time. (laughs) <laughs> so I think this question about who chooses and who and power, I mean, I, I think this comes back to pa- power. And I, I think um, who has power in the city and I, I'm kind of bringing in this idea of planning because we're about to go through some radical planning. Uh, well, the planning white paper puts out some quite radical reforms that might see that community voice or community consultation taken out of that planning process. And I wondered if you had had views about the way that we engage with communities currently, if it's good enough, and actually going forward. Yeah, I'm re- I have real problems. That, that planning white paper, as my chief exec says, it's solving a problem we haven't got. We haven't got, a, our problem is, we've got loads of sites with planning permission that aren't being de- delivered. Help us solve that problem. It's not about freeing up so we get more sites with permissions. We've got, uh, we've got plenty. And that's, that's symptomatic of a government that solves its own problems in Westminster and Whitehall and doesn't actually talk to people doing stuff um, on the ground. My other concern is that we, it could lead us to a values-free uh, development. Uh, we need more values now. We need it to be pro-nature for the ecological emergency, pro-climate for climate, and we need our developments to be built with a specific commitment to building community. Um, and if you loosen the uh, local government at its best, it's not about controlling and stopping. It's about shaping and enabling. And uh, they're not allowing us to shape and enable uh, these developments. So, but engaging with communities, again, I, I, local government is not, it's not the holy place where it's got this stuff perfect. Um, but absolutely, our development needs to be done uh, with people. Otherwise, you build, you build developments that, are, that don't have any resilience. Um, they're artificial, they're disconnected, they have no community, they have no narrative. And we've seen historically when you, uh, if we build bad developments, they end up costing us money in the long term. So this, um, which parts of the planning white paper are you most concerned of? Is it permitted development or is it the whole thing? I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly concerned that it doesn't actually, in many ways, what's not in it, I'm particularly concerned that it doesn't address our problems. So, so that the, it's the absence of stuff in it that, that, um, uh, that really causes me a, a concern. Um, but then it's the presence of uh, measures that would allow essentially to bypass democratic influence over, uh, you know, over development. Uh, it, again, you know, our, our aim is not to stop development. We've been very clear in the city that we want to get houses built. Uh, we want mass infrastructure. We want, we've been pressing government to front load investment in green infrastructure so that the, the, the economic recovery by its nature is not killing the planet, right? That we're going to go on. And, and then in some sense, you can have almost a guilt-free uh, economic growth because you're not having that trade-off between growth and planet. Um, so we are pro-development. Um, we're just pro the right kind of development. And uh, what this paper does not do is support us to make sure that we get the right kind of development. You'll know that we've we've matched everything that we've done in the city up against the SDGs. You know, I, I would like paper to make explicit reference to delivering the SDGs. Uh, just the like, sustainable. I'm just jargon busting the sustainable sorry, development. Yeah. The, the sustainable yeah. development goal. Yeah, good quality mm-hmm. life, women's rights, uh, pro nature, life on life on um, 
life on uh, sea, life on land, climate, all of these things that we think build a resilient uh, future, which is not just a just future, but also is a, a financially cheaper future to run because you're less vulnerable to shocks and you're reducing the contribution you make to future world shocks. So the the challenges you talked about where you've got sites that are ready to build and they're not building, I mean, you haven't reached your affordable housing target, your housing right. target that you set out. And I wondered if you could go into why not? What are these challenges that are stopping you from delivering homes? So there's, there's a couple of big ones that have hit us that we can have anticipated. The prospect of a no-deal Brexit um, has been a bit of a shock to the sector and obviously COVID, um, which is very, very real physical challenges for developers on, on site. But I will say I'm in the middle of calling around a few of the landowners in Bristol who have said they want to get stuff done and they ain't got it done. Um, you know, they're going for easy sites, not brownfield sites with some complexity in the middle of the city, which is where we actually need them, by the way. If we can build homes in the middle of the city within active travel distance of major employment, retail, entertainment, then we can we can build our dependency on you know, fossil fuel transport <laughs> uh, um, options. Um, but so, but they're choosing, uh, the, the feedback I've been getting from my team is they're choosing easy sites. So their numbers to government look great and their numbers to Homes England look look okay because they're getting the numbers through. But what they're not doing is helping cities solve the problems. And that's not acceptable, which is, again, which is, which is why any government conversation with city leaders would talk about how do you empower mayors and empower city leaders to drive the kinds of developments uh, we need. And if you're sitting on land and it's in the middle of a city with a housing crisis um, and you're not developing it, that's not okay. Right? You're, you're, it's not a neutral act. You'll end up costing us money as we spend money on temporary accommodation and all the other interventions that kick in when when households don't have homes and, and communities are unstable and government need us to give us the power and the resource to, to make sure that um, developers understand that they can't sit on land that goes undeveloped. You've got a lot of community-led housing in the city. Are you doing enough to support them, to help them deliver for you? I think, I mean, we're doing our best. Um, I, I, we've got some fantastic schemes coming through. We've um, done a great piece of work with um, uh, Z-Pods and there's something called the Bristol Housing Festival, which has really found itself on the front end of um, uh, modular homes as well. So we've got, with the YMCA, 11 units have gone up above a car park. They're built on stilts on the edge of a park. Oh, yeah. And there's homeless young people. It's absolutely fantastic. Really innovative. It was a risky development. Our housing team weren't used to doing things like this, uh, but by linking up with Housing Festival and uh, and actually it was Bristol Housing Festival led uh, with YMCA and it was our car park. You know, we got it done. I I heard today that LNG have just said that one of the uh, the modular schemes they're bringing through it would be the the shortest ever time that they've gone from contacting a local authority to planning, which is quite something. So so our teams have worked incredibly. Uh, hard at working with um, developers and community organisations to get um, to get homes built, but there's a, there's a background challenge to this uh, facing local authorities, um, and we've shared this with people working in Bristol. That after back of ten years of austerity, austerity is often associated with the loss of frontline services. You know, a day centre here, a part there, but austerity also means a loss of backroom capacity. Um, so the planners and the lawyers and the, the project managers their jobs go too, and they end up overstretched. Um, and that means that us, that the, the cogs in the city wheel, the, the lubrication that those kind of people um, provide to the city systems, 
um, is in short is in short supply. Again, so our, our point to government has been: uh, you need to support our backroom capacity. And, and with developers in the city, we've also talked about whether they could lend resource to us in the name of keeping the the cost lubricated so that land can be brought forward, negotiations can be um, undertaken. We have had some offers, some legal firms have offered legal time, and that's been great because they've entered into the spirit of what we're trying to do. But you, you mentioned on a panel with me before that you feel like the public sector is not a reliable partner for the private sector, or that it needs to become a more reliable partner. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you meant when you said that? Well, what I meant, I, I think we were reliable in our spirit. Uh, but what I what I said was that national government need to give us more certain funding. I just wrote a list of the uncertainty. We are get, we are constantly as local government served up with uncertainty by national government funding. So, uh, nas- the, the government, the national cabinet. Can I see your list? Can you show me? <laughs> There's a little list there. Okay, it's a big <laughs> I just list. A little list. <laughs> when 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 we work with national government, we are expected to play outside off for any rugby fans, number 10, to a, to a fragmented cabinet. Cabinet does not join up, right? So, I need a jargon buster. I don't know. The, 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 don't cabinet, know. the political cabinet. No, I mean the rugby. I don't... I oh, right. well, the number 10 is the, is the linchpin player between the forwards and the backs. And it's the, okay. The, the decision. Bad position. Tough yeah, decision. they, they tough, made a decision. Okay. So we're expected to, to play the role of joining up Department of Health with Department of Communities, Local Government, with Department of Transport. They don't join up. We're supposed to join them up when they come and land, which is a heavy burden uh, to take on. So there's fragmentation within cabinet. Then the the way they issue money is they put out their own pots of money in different places. So again, we run after some money for transport. Then we go and run after some money for housing. Then we go and run after some money for education and school building. So you can see the fragmentation of the world in which uh, which we have to work. Then they they work on short-term horizons. So these pots of money are often big pots, and then they, they throw it into the mix, and they say to local government, hey, compete for that. So we're all in a zero-sum competition among uh, local government for those pots of money. That are on one, two, three-year horizons, they don't offer us the, the money for long-term planning. We've had a, a local a national spending review, comprehensive spending review. It's been delayed and delayed. And then we have a government white paper on devolution that's been delayed four times, and we don't know when it's coming. So what that does to us at the local government level, when when I Bristol's population is going to grow by 15% over the next 25 years by nearly 100,000 people. I would like to plan on a 10, 15, 20, 25 year horizon for Bristol. Houses, mass transit system, you know, <laughs> decarbonisation, pro-nature. But it's very difficult to plan like that if, if the funding regime in which you work and the legislative regime in which you work is so fragmented in short term, which is what national government serves us up. What that does is, if I cannot plan like that, then by definition, the level of certainty we offer to our local planners, our business community, is not what it could be. Now, we are working hard in the city to to plan in spite of that. We have the one city plan that we've worked with that goes up to 2050, and we've written that with business, with unions, with our public sector partners, uh, and so forth. So we're planning in spite of it. But what I'm saying is if we we could come up with financial vehicles that enabled places to plan with with a degree of certainty over 15 to 20 years, we'd be much more reliable partners. Thanks for that. Um, did you get through your whole list? Is that all of it? Yeah, I, I, could, <laughs> add, I could add a no deal Brexit into there for more uncertainty, <laughs> but, we won't, but we won't bother with that one at the moment. 
I I wanted to ask you about your relationship with the combined authority uh, and how is that working relationship? And do you think we have a, a fit for purpose structure going on with these um, combined authorities and city mayors? It, so um, there's, a, there's a broader point and there's a very specific point on that. Um, more specific, on the broader point, the combined authorities were set up back to front. It's the point I made from the beginning. So what happened was, again, in line with the national government approach, national government said, here is a structure we'd like you to take on. Um, and if you take it on, we will give you money, right? And give, so you're, you're beholden to take it on, right? Because otherwise you're turning down money. Um, what they should have said was, here's a collection of behaviors we'd like you to engage in. Cross-border working, long-term planning. Work out how it is most appropriate for you to engage in those behaviors. What kind of governance structure will you set up? And then we'll come and negotiate with you about the governance structure. But what we want is the behaviors. Simply adopting a structure does not guarantee the behaviors. And in fact, we're seeing this uh, locally. So we work hard to make to retrofit the values and behaviors into those structures, but the structures in on themselves are back to front. Um, so there's, a, there's an inbuilt weakness there. Um, locally, we've done our best to to work because we know because the, the, there's greater prize here. There's, so we've worked, we've done our best to make it work. I I think there are some challenges locally in uh, for us in Bristol specifically, um, not least that our combined authority. Um, we, we think there's a dynamic between a rural city dynamic that means that sometimes the city is disadvantaged or not heard of, or there's some kind of um, and, and we have to be careful about that. Um, and then, it, it, I mean, it wouldn't be uh, genuine if I wanted to say that we've just had a whole bunch of headlines because I've, I didn't uh, support North Somerset. I didn't, well, I do support North Somerset joining our own combined authority, which is a neighbouring rural authority. Uh, but there were some preconditions that were not met, uh, not least what is the financial deal. So we've got three authorities working with the money at the moment. If we, if there is no financial deal, we'd end up with four. And I said, "Oh, hold on, <laughs> get the deal, get you know, work out the deal." At the moment, Bristol, which is the only city um, in the combined authority area, is one of three voices. We would be one of one of four, and we'd have three rural voices and one city voice. There's a there's an issue about that. And do rural areas understand the the the, the and the importance of maintaining the city economy or do they resent it? Historically, there has been some resentment from the rural to the, to the um, city voice and it's a different kind of politics. So we just needed to safeguard that, the, the interests of the city, um, not least because unless the city economy is strong, the whole regional economy um, uh, is weak. So um, those, those conditions weren't met. Um, they've had two years to sort them out. They haven't met them. And, and so I said, you know, the, the risk for Bristol of expanding is too high without a, without a clear deal and without some governance assurances that um, our, our interests would be protected. I'm, I'm just shifting slightly, Martin, because the sun is attacking. This, this, uh, this London sunshine is, um, is, is a killer today. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, there we go. Okay. Um, so, so what I'm hearing is this, 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 this rural and city kind of split and this different need of approach is kind of problematic. And I want to zoom in on the city and some of the challenges that you're facing right now. It's not a great economic time and post COVID, what are you seeing? Uh, well, 
in a number of different areas. In terms of the population and my immediate um, concern, I think what we're seeing is um, underlying trends towards compounding inequalities. So we're already an unequal city, a fragmented city. Uh, but by definition, I think those who are closest to the margins of, of, of the economy are going to be hit first and hardest. And then they'll be least well-placed to benefit from any uptick when it comes. So we, I think we will see a growing inequality. When you overlay that inequality on social media um, and the uh, balkanization of our, of our society, the increasing um, divisions and adversarialism, I think it's a very dangerous political mix and, and could be a very toxic um, situation. I'm really relieved as what's happened in the United States. Um, I'm concerned that people will expect too much. You know, the level of emotional investment means they think that as soon as Biden becomes president, that the world will change on the sixpence. It will not. <laughs> Those trends will continue. But I, I'm very concerned about that. What we're seeing immediately as well is the pressure on small businesses uh, not meeting the, th the threshold. Uh, we have a big hospitality sector that's being hit hu in a huge way. We have aerospace here again. They've been hit badly. So we're going to see growing numbers of people obviously losing their jobs and falling into hopelessness. And then we're going to see the, 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 the physical consequences of that as well, the health consequences, which is not going to disappear when the economy ticks up. It's going to be the long-term legacy of broken families, homelessness, uh, mental health uh, you know, as well. It's for, it certainly is driving a conversation about the need to have uh, genuinely devolved resource and leadership to our cities and our regions. You've seen that in Manchester and the debate between Andy Burnham and and, and well, it wasn't a debate, was it? It was a, <laughs> it was a plea to government and government not not responding. Um, so my hope is that it will be a gateway to a, a shift in the structure of governance in the UK. Um, I know that um, the BAME population has been disproportionately hit. Deprived populations have been disproportionately hit. What? Uh, but then I also see how in those early days of the crisis, you know, the the homeless were taken off the streets. They were given homes, you know, in cities across the across the country. It felt like a lot of this inequality is a policy uh, decision that can be fixed equally with with policy. So I guess, um, what policy do you think that we need? Oh, geez, it's the, it's the whole thing. I, I mean, what I would like is, fundamentally, I, I, if, to me, it's about structure and policy. It's, we've got a lot of ideas, but one of the problems is the structure we have just doesn't have the ability to get them out of the, the gaps. And I get, I, I'll keep going back to the fact when, when decisions are, when, when, when challenges are defined and decisions are worked up in Westminster and Whitehall with no conversation with the major cities or local authorities outside of cities as well you can have a problem and at the moment that's what happens um the core cities have just uh, been in touch with government and said could you just build into your monthly schedule a zoom call with the leaders of the 10 biggest cities in the uk so that what you say is informed by what's actually going on um, in our cities mm. i mean I'm, i doubt that that will happen but to me that's one of the things i would do if i was up there it just makes sense um, so we need to, we need to get that money out. I, I, one of the things I, I think, going back to the idea of a plan, I would like government to be a bankable partner for local government. That doesn't mean a blank check, but it means sit with us, let us write the plan for the city, house building, green infrastructure, decarbonizing energy and transport. What that will allow us to do is offer people economic hope. I can point to the jobs. We're going we're to build a mass transit system 
be thousands of jobs there. We're going to get your skills ready for it, right? It's almost it's, it's like a green. It's a it's a new deal right, for the UK. Front load that investment. Let us work on a plan, and then I can talk to the city as though it's got hope. At the moment, it's very hard to talk about hope uh, within Bristol. Now we can. We use a proverb in Bristol a lot. It says we don't despise our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And often what we found is in the middle of suffering, we have seen communities mobilize. It's been phenomenal. All right? And we have seen the sources of our own resilience um, in our communities. But that movement from suffering to perseverance is not automatic. You have to help people to do it. Um, and that takes an active local government and it takes uh, uh, it takes ge- uh, genuine uh, planning. But we need that investment. We need that freedom to, to, to plan and innovate and invest early doors. Hmm. I, we have um, we have one uh, question from uh, Olida Obo, who's the director of partnerships for First Base, who who develop uh, property in in Bristol. How do we ensure that we deliver social value alongside homes to deliver social and wider community benefits? Is social value something that you are focused on, and how do you think we deliver it? Yeah, I mean, we've we've um, we we our whole social value um, policy within the council to make sure it's it's not just the lowest price, but we're looking at those, we understand and, and deliver on those wider benefits. I mean, I, I suppose maybe the, the easier, the obvious answer is the, is the right one. It's about engaging with communities to make sure that what is done is in line with what communities say needs to be done. So it's locally informed. It's not just an Excel sheet and a beautiful drawing, um, but um, but it's informed by by people say what the narrative is, what the need is, and, and actually not just what the need, because I don't want a, just a deficit needs-based approach to um, to our communities and our city. It's what's the opportunity, and the opportunity is to do fantastic things. I was on a call with Skanska yesterday, and I said, everyone wants to do good work, right? <laughs> we want you to do good work. So if we talk, we can we can maximise the, the the possibility that we will properly understand the the challenge and the opportunity and and um, and deliver it. So working with us working with communities, taking the time to engage in those conversations. I would also say, uh, as an extension, employ people from the communities as well. Don't just come in with a bunch of experts and try and raid the, you know, raid the lived experiences of people that are there. What they have to say in their lived experiences is worth money and they need to be respected as such. So come in, employ local people, employ community people to help you have those conversations and make sure that intelligence is actually in the organization. We talk about this in the private sector anyway now, wouldn't we, right? Accessing a diversity of thought so that your understanding of the world and new markets is in the organization. You don't have to go out and pay a consultant £2,000 a day to tell you what black people think, what women people think. (laughs) It's in your organization. So employ local people, early doors. I think that'd be quite an innovative approach. We'd love to talk to companies who are doing that. Sometimes when sometimes the citizen view and the the needs of the planet clash. I'm, I'm thinking in particular around cars, and I know you've recently or you you placed the emissions. Um, what's it called? The central emission zone. Your oh, your clean air zones. The clean air zone on on yeah <laughs> yeah on hold. Um, is that a political decision on the basis of you know? Is that would that prove unpopular? There's been kind of a mixed. A reaction in some communities to some of the um, bicycle and, and pedestrian initiatives. Uh, so I guess you know, is that the is that the right thing to do in terms of the climate emergency? And is that a case where 
the citizen perspective um, or the need to, to drive uh, for some individuals or, or a, a culture of driving clashes with uh, a, a kind of climate or, or um, climate and air pollution reduction. We haven't put them on hold. We're mod- they're being modelled now. So, yeah, we, we have a legal directive, and I would say we, we have a moral directive. We recognise that to deliver um, com- uh, clean air in the shortest possible time. They're not on hold. What, but what we've done is uh, the clean air zones charge. Right? They're both charging options. Um, through lockdown, we discovered that there was a change to transport uh, patterns and we saw an opportunity to that if we could change the flows of traffic through the middle of the city we could actually bring about uh, compliant air without charging all right so that's what we're doing so we're, we're, we're modeling that at the same time so we're pursuing we're pursuing a cas d which does not charge private cars a cas c that does charge non-compliant private cars and we're pursuing the non-charging option as well and we think a non-charging option would be best for everyone the problem, the problem with some, some, so much of the climate activism, this is it's a middle class, it's a white middle class pursuit, and it doesn't actually take seriously the fact that when some people say I've got no more money, they have no more money. The number of times I've heard some of the climate activists and air activists say, "We'll just pay a few pennies more," and they've never. <laughs> so I lived in a house where when my mum said there was no money, there was no money, and my concern is that they, the, well, you see some of the actions of Extinction Rebellion. You'll end up alienating people. You may get some short-term popularity on Twitter, but you'll lose the dressing room, and they'll go for reactionary politicians that say there is no problem. Look what look how much. I mean, Trump lost the election, but you know his appeal to coal-producing areas was dangerous, right? And if he got re-elected, we'd be in the right spot right now. So actually, respecting the fact that not everyone lives in the world that you live in is really important. The cycling lobby in the city, uh, for, I mean, I ride a bike, although I'm, I suppose I haven't qualified as a cyclist, even though I ride a bike, because I don't look like a cyclist, right? Um, but for some... You mean you don't you don't wear the outfit? I don't wear the outfit. I don't always wear a helmet, most of my wife's consternation. But it's one of the most angry lobbies in the world, in the city. And actually, I've had other leaders say this. Now, but they just want me to close all the streets, you know? I mean, you, you can't do that. And... and Failing to respect other people's priorities is a major issue. Now, if we just close down the streets and ruin businesses, or we've got care workers trying to get around the city to take care of their clients, suddenly now facing a charge to drive through the clean air zone, and we're not taking... And remember, care workers are often those people on the lower end of the earnings, right? Not necessarily being paid for travel time between uh, carers as well. You have to respect that. And and that I think that... The the the, pre, the the prominence of single issue activism is a real problem, even if the single issue is a really important issue, right? And that's what we get too much of. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, and then what happens is, I as a politician, I'm not pleading any, I'm not asking for any sympathy here, right? Um, as it's your job, <laughs> it, it is, it is. I'm bigger, but listen. I, I am a politician, but remembering too, I'm a mixed race guy who grew up with a single white woman in the middle of a city that didn't give two hoots about me, right? Mm. So I get a lot of people now coming and playing the moral high ground with me who I just look on as posh people, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> and didn't didn't do and them and their class. I said to someone from Extinction Rebellion the other day when they were holding me accountable for neoliberalism, I said, neoliberalism wasn't built by my people. It enslaved my people and oppressed my white heritage. 
rich white Europeans built neoliberal order, right? So when you come and hold me accountable for it, right, there's a little bit of a dynamic and you must understand that. It paid for you to go to your private school. <laughs> and it was a private school person who was giving me a tough time about an unjust world. So um, we've, got to, we've got to take a, a, a dose of humility here and self-awareness. But what we And get- I respect that what you're talking about is a real, it's a real challenge, I think, because the, the, the climate um, issues and uh, will affect those communities that also are most reliant on the car, which will also affect them. So it's, the, it's a really difficult thing to do. So how do we transition to greener um, and at the same time support theirs? Is, it, is that where the mass transit system comes in? Is that yeah. with, yeah. Got to provide them with a viable alternative and you have to do justice. It's the point, see, I've noticed over the last few years, people have started to talk about climate justice and social justice a lot more. They're making it more prominent. I hope that's real, right? I hope that when the climate activism is talking about social justice, it's real and it's not just a strategy, right? Because we've been talking about this from the beginning. If, if there's a mother who's worried about feeding her children tonight and tomorrow, who is at risk of losing her home, talking to them about existential threats to humanity that face us in 25 years ain't going to wash, right? You've got to respect people where they are in the crisis they're in. You earn the right to bring your crisis. And I've had that too often. We've heard people say, yeah, I, I know that you can't feed your kids, but I've got a bigger problem and I want you to take my problem on. You know, that's not respectful. Mm. That's no way of leading. We... I recognize the existential threat to humanity, right? I want to take that on. But you've got to say, if you want that to be successful, you have to recognize where people are. And people are struggling to eat. They're losing their jobs right now. We're about to go into economic uh, depression in which homelessness is going to spike. We have to do what the unions have called a just transition, where poor people are not asked to pay the disproportionate price for correcting an economy that was built and shaped and benefited middle class and rich people. (laughs) That would be a double injustice. Um, And that's what we're trying to do. Hence, greening the economy, making sure the jobs are green, we're paying the living wage, we're taking care of domestic violence, we're feeding our our kids. When you've done that, you earn the right to speak into other people's lives about taking on your priority. But until you've done that, you need to approach this with very light footsteps, I think. I think. But I think we're trying to do that in Bristol because we have prioritised those issues of poverty as well as uh, prioritising the issues of the climate and ecological emergency. So do you feel that that charging cars uh, kind of, is, is, a, is a kind of poor or a deprivation tax? Well, it'd be a regressive tax. If, you, if, you, if, you, if, if you're on £100,000 a year and you're paying £8 to, to, for a charging zone, and you're on £22,000 a year, you're paying £8. By definition, it's a regressive tax. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it might be the only thing that's available to us because we have to deliver compliant air. The complication is that people then say, well, it's poor people who live in the most polluted areas. That's not totally true. We have a lot of out-of-town housing estates with uh, areas of deprivation, and the inner city is being gentrified at a rate of, of a rate of knots at the moment um, for people who want city centre living and all the cultural offer. Um, but I recognise that historically poor people have had the dirtiest air, um, uh, so there's a there's a complication there. But we have to do it in a way that takes care of of people with their everyday needs. I think it's probably fair to say that many poor communities have the worst transport, the worst cycling yeah. infrastructure. Uh, so whether or not their air is clean, there is a sense that that mass transit is needed, that cycling infrastructure to bring um, that, that alternative is, is not presented. 
Oh, also, also the cyclists don't. Uh, the cycling conversation doesn't always take account of where you put your bike too. If you're in a if you're in a small two two bed house and you don't have a nice wide um, hallway or a nice back garden with a shed to store your bike, there's another issue about access to cycling. It's not just about segregated bike lanes; it's about uh, storage too. And what do you? Uh, where do you sit on the on space standards for permitted development, or some of the micro um, developments that have been happening, student flats that are happening, this kind of trend towards very small? Uh, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I'm quite open to those conversations. Actually, I, I do think we need to. Um, the scale of the challenge we face means that we do need to explore different ways of different ways of living, uh, community living, uh, for example, particularly if those smaller living quarters are, are accompanied by bigger communal uh, spaces. We need to um, explore that. One of the truths, one of the challenges we face, and which is why I am into the planning, the long-term planning, is the kind of homes we build and where we build them will be one of the biggest determinants of our planetary impact, won't it? If we build thousands of homes on the edge of the city, they're going to be dependent on transport. If we can build them in the middle with inactive travel distance, we don't need to build the car provision there because they'll be walking... And, and cycling. If we go for the middle of the city at higher density, um, then we face questions of do we go up? And some people are horrified about going up or do we keep them low but smaller? And there are all sorts of trade-offs. Part of it is that it's not a perfect world. And again, it's not a single issue. It's not just space standards. It's space standards in relation to uh, footprint, in relation to height, in relation to carbon. And, and what we need is desperately is to be able to have conversations in which if someone says something different to you, you're not on Twitter describing them as the devil, <laughs> which unfortunately undermines our ability to have the kind of grown-up conversations we need to have to, to take on the climate, ecological and social challenges we, we have today. The, the questions are flying in, Marvin, so I'm going to deliver some of them to you. So um, thanks very much to the audience for that. Uh, Rory Gatside, who's a student at, Car at Cardiff, says, I love how passionate you speak about the city, Marvin, despite the hard times we're going through. Could you share some of the projects which you're most proud of within Bristol with regards to placemaking and sustainable transport? Yeah, I, I'm really proud of the one I mentioned earlier on, Zed Pods. Um, so we have a car park on the edge of a park, St. George's Park in Bristol. And, and because it was really in innovative, so it's a, just an open car park, probably, I don't know, 100 cars, um, if that my estimates are probably all over the place. But there's nothing above the car park. And the Z-Pod scheme is building these units on stilts um, above that space so you can take advantage of that space in a beautiful location. Linked up with YMCA, those homes are going to... Um, young people at risk of homelessness, they're zero carbon homes. They're on a main bus route. You know, I mean, I live near there. You know, I ride my bike into work in about 15 minutes. So that's incredible. And But what's nice about it is it also empowers the YMCA and it empowers uh, Bristol Housing Festival. So it's not the city council consuming this. They're getting the, the boost and the profile from it. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of that. Um, scheme. Also, th there's a, a fantastic organisation called Ambition Lawrence Western. Uh, been involved in in uh, community development, housing delivery, but they've just got investment in a major renewable um, energy source. And Lawrence Western is one of those areas that tips in the top ten percent most deprived in England. And yet, their community organisation is on the front end of renewable energy. Absolutely fantastic. Mark Pepper's one of the dynamos um, down there. And that's a real source of pride. We don't have to do everything from in in the council. What we need to do is 
find good people and help them to get good stuff done. And those are two examples of that. Thanks for that. Uh, there's a question from uh, Jaffer Maliani, a sustainability uh, consultant at BDP. Do you have thoughts on climate resilience in Bristol? If you can't plan long term, what can you do to adapt for heat waves and extreme rainfall that are going to happen in 10 years? Do, this, do cities have the skills, time and money to plan for this? So my thoughts on it, I, I, I did, I've, we've been sharing recently that the most resilient cities in the future would be those that were most attractive to win with investment. And then the other day I read an article from Bloomberg saying just that, that the developers are now starting to factor in resilience, uh, particularly on flood. But it, that strikes me, it stands to reason that in a world that's threatening to become increasingly unstable, if you can offer stability um, and resilience to shocks, don't flood, don't have social breakdown, that people will want to put their money there. So um, that's one of my first thoughts I've been saying to our people. The SDGs, delivery of the SDGs is worth money to us. Um, the planning, uh, we're, again, I come back, I was on a call with C40 not too long ago and we, we kicked off this conversation. I go to so many gatherings in which mayors tell each other stories about best practice in particular communities and it's all very nice, but it's of really limited value. Because if you tell me a fantastic story about something, first thing I say is, well, how much does that cost? You know, I might like it, but can we afford to do it? I'd like to put green walls up all over Bristol, right? But the first thing we're facing now is, well, how much do they cost? Do we have the expertise? Uh, what happens if they die? You end up with this big brown wall of dead leaves and so forth, right? I love to do it. Um, but, but we need the financial vehicle for cities. I will, I'm pleased to say, actually, that I'm on the World Economic Forum Cities uh, board now, and we are looking at um, new financial vehicles for um, cities um, because governments ain't serving it up. And we need some of these big philanthropists who say they want to build a better world, uh, the Gateses and Soroses, that actually put us in a room with their very wealthy friends and say, you know what, national governments are failing. You know, here's $100 billion. <laughs> we like what you're doing. It's going to come with you. And, you. and we'll work with you over the next 25 years to reconceptualize, replan, and rebuild your city so that so people can live without killing the planet. Do we have the skills? To be perfectly frank, no. It, and it comes back to we have some of the skills, uh, but we don't have all the skills we need. Um, and it comes back to the point I made earlier on, that austerity means we lose our backroom capacity. If I'm talking to my city about whether I keep a children's centre open, or whether I spend that money on a, a really good environmental planner, what are they going to choose? Children's centres where it's at, right? Because kids ain't eating today. Parents need need support today. Um, so we need to be adequately sourced to, to have those skills in our organisations. So what I'm hearing is you don't have the money, you don't have the uh, you don't have the skills, and um, but you have the but you understand and recognise the need. Yeah, um, I, I want to be. I don't want to be too do monger here, right? We're doing <laughs> we're doing a lot, we're doing everything we can with what we got, which is the way I've had to live my life, right? When you open a fridge and uh, there's not much in it, you can't just sit there moaning. You got to try and work out how you're going to get something to eat, and that's what we do. So we're hustling in Bristol, if I can say it like that. Uh, if you look at the Bristol One City office, we've pulled together all our city partners, um, private sector, voluntary sector, unions, local government working really well together. Give you an example. Um, last year, we bid for money from the government's fund to for child hunger. We got nothing. <laughs> this is incredible. They gave us no money, despite our structure. 
But nonetheless, Bristol City Council put 25 grand in the pot. And then the business community came together and put another £100,000 in the pot. And we, with that money, we, get, we gave out 55,000 meals to hungry children. So we're making stuff happen, right, our, off our own back. Um, all I'm saying is that, that an environment could be put in place that made it more rather than less likely for us to be uh, successful. Um, and that takes, that, that takes, at this moment in time, government front-loading investment in green infrastructure and city redesign and redelivery. Lots of money, lots of jobs, decarbonize the economic renewal growth that's to come. It, to me, it just makes sense. You bring your personal life and your personal experience and that passion to what you do. Do you think there's a failure of empathy in national government? Uh, it's difficult. I can't look into people's hearts, um, so I don't know. But I can go on what people say and some of the some of the language I've heard come out of um, uh, some prominent politicians in national government. As to be perfectly frank, left a lot to be desired. Um, but this this speaks to the need to have greater diversity of life in in our in our national leadership. Right, we live in one of the most socially immobile countries in OECD, don't we? Right? where the circumstances of your birth are the biggest predictor of where you end up in life. And the report from 2014 on called Elitist Britain uh, by the Child Poverty Social Mobility Commission, um, chaired by Alan Milburn, um, with a forward by Cameron, Clegg, um, Miliband and John Major, said that the, the British elite um, is so tied to background that you have it looks like social engineering. In fact, you have to ask the question, to what extent does the British elite reflect background or talent, and in fact, it doesn't reflect talent. So, I, I think if we can get more diversity of a lived experience of thought into our into our national leadership, then hopefully that leadership has a greater understanding of what's actually happening in people's lives. But they could start simply by having a regular conversation with city leaders, so they know what is actually happening in in UK cities. Uh, there's a question um, again from Olida Obo uh, from First Base. What does good recovery look like for Bristol? Inclusive, decarbonized, and pro nature, and 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 what it will look like is um, it will look like building out the weaknesses that have been exposed by COVID. The mayor of Helsinki said a great thing the other day, um, and I now I can remember half of it. <laughs> oh no, what he said was. The COVID has, has revealed more than it's changed. And, and certainly in Bristol, um, the conversation we were having was that what I mean, I'm not going to welcome COVID, but it's provided an opportunity for academics, at least, right, to learn more about our cultures and our economics and our political systems than they perhaps ever have because everything's been stripped bare. Mm. Right? Our economic system, um, our jobs market, housing, food, Look, we had to suspend our local uh, elections. So even our political system, the, the weaknesses were exposed. The opportunity is to not build back with those weaknesses in them. That's what good recovery looks like. A, an economy that is more resilient to future shocks, but reduces the contribution it makes to the likelihood of future shocks. Uh, I've got a lot of questions. So just pardon me as I... Um as I scroll, but thank you very much, the audience. You've got, we've got eight minutes left, so I'm going to try and power through them. But um, there's a question around the creative industries in, um, in Bristol and uh, about it being a creative city and how, um, how are they, yeah, how can you 
what is, role does arts and culture play in creating vibrant places? And I, can you address some of the challenges the creative sector is going through now? Well, as with everything, it's a mixed bag, right? So I remember someone telling me, Wykeith Jean said that from the Fuji said that uh, music studios were the new basketball courts for African-Americans. And I certainly see that kind of thing in, in Bristol. The creative sector is a phenomenal pathway for for opportunity and economic inclusion. At the same time, the creative sector in Bristol is one of the most race and class segregated industries in the city, mm -hmm. right? It, and, and when we are the new home of one of Channel 4's creative hubs, and one of the reasons we bid for Channel 4, and I, I would say that one of the reasons they came here was because uh, we believe that they could help us bring greater diversity to that creative sector because of their commissioning power. Um, and, um, and they believe we, we were serious about that. And they saw in us a, a partner who would help them uh, do that. So it's, it's got this, it, it, the creative sector is one of those things. It's a fantastic boast for us. And it's all true. A third of the world's natural history broadcast in Wallace and Gromit and Ardman and all that stuff is absolutely amazing. Bottle Yard Studios. Uh, but we just need more jobs for working class and black and Asian people <laughs> in there because they haven't they haven't traditionally been um, open. The sector as a whole is faring. Um, it's a challenge um, because so many people are freelancers as well. So certainly with our combined authority, we we made sure that they made explicit reference to freelancers within the um, support packages that were for workers as well. So we need it to to flourish and survive. We've just actually set up a culture board for the city. First time we've had one that's chaired by Lynn Barlow from UWE, um, who's prominent in the creative sector as well. Um, and hopefully that will help us craft that plan for the sector in the future so that we're very intentional about what we build and how we build it. There's a question from Kathy Gibbs. What have been the main barriers to rolling out reliable and extensive mass transit to date in Bristol? And how are you going to overcome these challenges? So this is this is an interesting one. So I've been elected since 2016, and it, it was about four months in that we uh, we managed to peel back the layers and we announced we were going to go for a mass transit system, including an underground. Um, so for us, then the challenge has been um, basically getting the money and financing it, and and then the time. Obviously, we've got to get experts. It's funny. I, I was doing an interview on Points West, and the interviewer David Garston, he said to me. It just sounds like you're getting a bunch of experts around talking. I said, well, I wouldn't want to get on an underground that wasn't built by experts. <laughs> <laughs> of course you get experts around talking and planning. It needs, to, it needs to work in terms of engineering. You need the finances need to stack up. And it's just going through that long process now. Before me, I don't know what the barrier was. I'm lack of vision, lack of commitment, lack of ability to get things done. Uh, but the truth is um, that we've certainly picked up a pace um, in doing it since um, 16 and there's no alternative. We, we're a city of half a million people. We need a mass transit system uh, to, to, to reduce pressure on roads and decarbonize the way people um, uh, uh, get around. What they say though, the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago. Second best time is today, right? So uh, we're planting it today. Do you see changing working patterns as a, a threat or a, uh, is that changing the way you're thinking about mass transit? No, it's not changing the way we're thinking about it. Uh, we're still pressing for it. Um, uh, so I, I don't know how work patterns are going to change. I, I, and 
I think there's a test to be had here that that's that that isn't something a middle class debate as well. There are lots of jobs that people don't work from home and will not continue to work from home. It's the office jobs, isn't it? You know, so um, many people was people will still need to be able to get around the city. And dare I say, in terms of accessing the full cultural offer of Bristol, the green space offer, we want Bristol to be a physically connected city that people can enjoy all of it and not feeling uh, left out, which has historically been the case. Um, people are working from home, and I think we're going to have to see how that plays itself out over the, the coming years. Um, I, I wouldn't like to make, would never make any predictions on that at the moment. <laughs> There's a question from Alex Jem Jeremy, Head of Partnerships from Poplar Harka. Marvin, if you could prize just one tool from central government's devolution toolbox right now, what would it be? I'd like long-term predictable finance. That's what I'd like. That's it, really. Be a bankable partner over 10, I'd like a 20-year financial deal. I'll write you a 20-year plan. <laughs> it, it sounds to me quite surprising that you know you don't budget with central government. Sit down and make a plan and do a budget like like you know a normal business would. It is quite shocking. Well, I might. So I'm first time politician. Right? It strikes me that the way government work is, uh, they have an Excel sheet. If you want money, they have an Excel sheet. Does the and then at the end of that process, it's just does the computer say yes or no? That's that's basically it. All right, you can miss out on major funding by one point, but no one's been upstream with you, making sure that that you, you got you know agreeing, co-creating the answer to make sure it works. Which is what I've constantly said to them: come upstream. Do we think mass transit's a good idea? Yeah. All right. If we all agree it's a good idea, why don't we work on it together so that it works? So that so that it works. Um, I'm talking about that, I'm just being called for a budget meeting. Now. Yes, and you know what? It <laughs> is time for us to wrap. Um, I really, so, yeah. Yeah, so, they, yeah, they don't do that. They don't do it. So it's, it, it causes, it creates a problem. It's no way to run a country. Uh, on that note, no way to run a country. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for being you with us today for your time. <laughs> It's uh, It's been a brilliant conversation. Yeah, round of emoji applause for you. And thank you for joining us here at the Festival of Place. Really great to have this fireside chat. I feel like I could spend another hour with you, but we don't have time. So um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. 